You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So, okay, what is Paul saying here at the end of this letter? Well, really, he's he's concluding everything, and he, he's really grounding his reasoning for sending the letter in a practical reason, right? Like the Philippians had given money to support Paul and his church planning mission. He's spreading the gospel and planting churches, and the Philippians had given to this effort. And so when Paul sets out to write to the Philippians at the beginning of the letter and at the end of the letter, he, he really does this he writes the letter with gratitude in mind. Now, as we've seen, it's a long letter. It's not just a thank you letter. Like Paul seizes the opportunity to not only thank the Philippians for their generosity in supporting his ministry, but he also uses the time to teach them, to encourage them, and to remind the Philippians that, uh, that Jesus loves them, and he reminds them of the gospel in Christ. He's done so beautifully, and it's because the Holy Spirit is writing through Paul to church, um, but practically, in this part of the letter, he, he, he ends by kind of uh, finishing up his practical goal. He ends by thanking them for their generosity. Um, but he doesn't just thank them. He also teaches them, as he is often apt to do. So he's going to draw their gaze and our gaze to what it means to be generous in Christ, what it means to be um, content in Christ. You'll see in this ending section, there's three kind of main sections and then a final sending. Um, and in each of the three sections, Paul thanks them. He thanks them, and then he moves to explaining kind of the reasoning for his thanking them, or he anchors it in an encounter truth, um, and then he reminds them of some sort of gospel application. Um, so let's take that first section of gratitude, verses 10 through 13. It says this. Let me read it again. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking, or not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Quite a famous verse there at the end. But he starts this section with gratitude. Gratitude that the Lord has reminded the Philippians, these people that he loves, this church that he's planted, of his ministry need. He celebrates that it was God who revived their concern for him. That God placed this concern for Paul on the Philippians' hearts, that, their, that his ministry was important and worth funding. But then, as a qualifier, he, he does say, I know you didn't forget about me, but, but there wasn't an opportunity to prove that you had remembered me until I, I made you aware of this opportunity to give. So really, Paul is kind of saying like, yeah, I, I suspected that you hadn't forgotten me, but now that you've had this opportunity to meet this need in my life, I'm reminded that you haven't forgotten me. Um, and then he does this other qualifier, which is helpful for me as someone who, like Paul, is dependent on generosity to have a job. He says this. He says in verse 11, uh, it's great that I'm shown that you love and care for me, but I've learned to be content regardless of whether or not my needs are physically met. See, this, this is practical for me, but it's also, I think, practical for us. He says, I have learned how to be brought low 
and abound. And so he's going to juxtapose these states of the human condition to be low and abound, to face hunger or to face plenty, to face need or to face abundance. So there's this, this spectrum here that Paul builds throughout his letter. On the one end, we have lowliness and hunger and need. And on the other end, we have abounding and plenty and abundance. And he says the secret sauce, the secret ingredient to weathering this whole spectrum, whether it's need and lack and poverty or abundance and fulfillment and abounding, says the secret to, to weathering all of that is contentment. He says the secret to all of this is contentment. And then we get this, um, this coffee mug favorite. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? But in this context, it's a little bit different. And the, and the verse really kind of crystallizes, what is Paul talking about? It's a verse related to contentment and rootedness in Christ, regardless of our circumstance, regardless of poverty or riches, abundance and need regardless of where we are on the spectrum. So it's a less of a verse. I'm not saying it's wrong to do this with this verse, but it's less of a verse that you whisper before you, you deadlift 350 pounds, which I've never done. I don't even know. I don't know that I've ever done a deadlift. Um, it's less of a verse that you whisper before yourself before you start the marathon. Also never done. Um, you're, not, you're not bad or wrong for doing that, to be clear. But the context of this verse is a verse that roots us in the gospel and in contentment, regardless of whether we know how we might make rent this month, or on the flip side, regardless of whether we know how to live a life of contentment in Christ with our abundant wealth. Um, my guess is, historically, Paul didn't experience the far side of the spectrum very often of abundance and abounding, uh, at least in the material sense, Right? But being content in lowliness, in poverty, and need was something that he learned over and over and over again. But by mentioning the other side, he reminds these very wealthy Philippians and any of us who might be comfortable with our stuff in abundance or wealth, he reminds us that that doesn't lead to contentment either. Right? In fact, both poverty and riches are in opposition to natural contentment in Christ. Here's what I mean. For the poor, it's easy to get fixated on what we don't have and therefore be discontent. For the wealthy, it's easy to revel in the stuff that we do have and neglect our deepest need, which is for Christ, because it feels like materially all our needs are met. Neither, neither end of the spectrum will naturally seek contentment in Christ. That is, until it is Christ who, himself who strengthens them in contentment. That's why contentment is the thing of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It, I, I can be content through Christ who strengthens me regardless of where I am on the spectrum of need or abundance. If you're, um, if you're like me, you've struggled with contentment. We talked about this at the prayer gathering a little bit, but some people in our community or maybe in your life seem to experience uh, physical hardship, mental hardship, emotional hardship. Others seem to experience abundance or travel or achievement. But we know, and, and if you don't, you should know, that's those two categories are not the complete story for any of us individually. 
right? Like we're, we're humans. People are complex combination of different joyful experiences and different sorrowful experiences, some in seasons more than others. And, uh, and during all of those blessings or hardships, we're called to be content. This is very difficult. The enemies of contentment and community are jealousy, envy, and bitterness. And I, we t- again, we talked about this at the prayer gathering, but um, Christian contentment for clarity is not to be confused with lack of emotion, right? Like we get this, this mental picture that, content, that we conflate contentment with like stoicism, like emotionless, just I'm level, I'm medium, I'm not going to be too happy or too sad, I'm going to be emotionless. And that's not what biblical contentment is talking about. Um, here's what I mean. The psalmists, uh, if you look to the psalms, they're dripping with contentment, this acknowledgement of God's goodness and his control. And at the same time, they display emotion. They display despair and joy and fear and delight in the face of a sinful world and a good God. And, and I, would, I would argue that the psalmists and even Paul here are free to experience their emotions more to a greater extent because they are content in who Christ is, right? Um, that's the secret that, that Paul is talking about. These things aren't in opposition, that contentment is the secret. Think of it this way. If my, if my circumstances are difficult and I'm ruled by bitterness or envy, like this thought that nobody understands or nobody cares and I'm not... I'm not anchoring myself in contentment in Christ, then all of my real emotions get pushed down and they only serve my bitterness. But, but if I'm content in Christ, regardless of circumstance, because I'm anchored in him, I'm therefore actually free to feel sorrow over hardship or joy about a sovereign God blessing my life. Instead of always wondering what everybody else is getting or what everybody else could be experiencing. Instead, in contentment in Christ, we're free. We're free to feel in a way that the psalmists and Paul feel. This is hard, but I think as we keep going, um, we'll see how we have access to this type of contentment. The next section, um, Paul kind of brings it back to gratitude, right? Like, So he's like, thank you. I mean, I'm good. In the first section, it's like, thank you. I'm good either way. But, but thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm content. I'll do whatever it takes. Christ strengthens me, but thanks. And then verse 14, he says, but yeah, okay, but the point of the letter is to thank you. So yes, thank you. It was kind of you to help me. And you'll see, it's like he can't just say thank you and move on. He has to anchor it with some sort of teaching about the Lord. That's what he says, verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share, or another word for that is fellowship, my trouble, And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. So he's praising them. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases your credit. First interesting thing here is in learning about Paul's needs and rising up to meet those needs together is the Philippians actually experience unity. Like they shared, the word is fellowship. They shared, they fellowshiped, they united around Paul's trouble. Think about, if you were old enough, uh, America post 9-11, 
this horrible event, but, but the trouble and chaos and, and fear of the, the trouble that was created from that really united our country in a way that we haven't been united since. Um, it, it's like hearing about Paul's trouble and his arrest and his, his lowliness in posture. They really unite around generosity towards him. And he points out, like, y'all supported me when nobody else would support me. I was traveling through all of these regions, and y'all were still supporting me. And he's really grateful. His gratitude is, is poignant. But in verse 17, he, he again does this thing to balance his gratitude. He says this, not that I seek or need the gift, but I seek the gift of that, that increases your credit. <laughs> what is he saying? Well, Paul is saying that really for him, the gift for him is that they grow in their generosity that they were united by a need, that they banded together to meet that need by being generous. This is why we say at Sojourn, and we said it to our members a few weeks ago, but I want to be clear, like when we ask for generosity, it's, it's truthfully a biblical opportunity that we get to invite each other to grow in generosity, to unite around a need, to experience fellowship in generosity. Generosity is fruit. It's evidence, he's saying, that the Lord is working in us by the Holy Spirit, it's evidence that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. I'm going to work on that section two a little bit more here in a second, but that third expression of generosity starts in verse 18 where Paul says this, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent me, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So once again, he, he focuses in on gratitude. I have received the full payment and more. He displays his contentment. He says, not only are my practical needs met, but the and more is that in his needs being met, the Philippians are growing spiritually into greater unity and greater generosity together. And for Paul, that is beyond what he could have asked for originally. He just asked that his need would be met. And in his need being met, the Philippians experienced unity that they hadn't, joy that they hadn't, and a growth in generosity that they hadn't. Before, in verse 17, Paul says that their giving increased their credit. What does that mean? Well, this idea is revisited in verse 19. It says, he, he says that God would supply every need of theirs according to the riches in glory in Christ. And this is, this is a place, one of the places in Scripture where theology can go off the rails a little bit in our culture. There's an important distinction there, though. He does say your needs will be met. But he says their needs will be met according to Christ, according to the riches and glory in Christ, right? Like, so this isn't a prosperity gospel moment for us, which in summation, the prosperity gospel says that if you are generous or just a better person on earth, then you will be blessed by more things on earth. You'll be blessed by more money or possessions. Um, if that were true, the verse would say this that God would supply every need of theirs according to the world. But that's not what Paul writes. He writes that God will supply and meet every need of, you, of yours according to Christ. Here's the distinction. How does Christ meet our goal? Well, it goes back to contentment, and it's an appeal to the gospel. He's saying our deepest need as humans is to be reconciled to God. 
It's also impossible to do that on our own because our loving God as a manifestation of his love cannot let sin go unpunished. He's holy and he is righteous and he cannot reward anybody who is not perfect in righteousness. Therefore, we are all, we all have fallen short of that glory. We have all fallen short of the standard of perfection. But this is what we celebrate at Christmas. God, in his generosity, supplies himself as both the obedient and righteous one and the payment, which is death, for sin. The incarnation is, is that God becomes man in Christ, lives a perfect life, dies a substitutionary death for sinners like you and like me so that we could be counted as righteous before a perfect God. And Jesus raises from the dead, which seals the accepted substitution. He sends his spirit to call his people to himself and change them into his image. So the deepest human need to be reconciled to God is met in Christ. And therefore, Christ as king of the universe has the power and authority to meet all of our needs. And as God, he knows exactly what is the best way to meet those needs. The world might say, and by world I also mean me, <laughs> I might say, well, the best way for God to meet my need right now would be more money. And sometimes that could be true, but, but our needs aren't met according to the world. Our needs, praise God, are met as Christians according to Christ. And I assure you, Christ is better at meeting our needs than we are. He knows how to better meet our needs than we do. And we are told in Scripture that God is working all things for our good. That means if life is particularly hard, if things are particularly overwhelming, if burdens are particularly heavy... If we knew what God knew, we would be celebrating. We would be celebrating, not at the expense of sorrow over sin on this planet. That's not what that's saying. It's not saying push down the hard things and forget about them. It's saying if we understood with the wisdom that we don't have, that God has for our lives, understood what our sorrow was doing for us and what this story is saying about who God is and what he has done, we would celebrate. I do think there's a time either when our souls depart this earth, when Christ returns, that we will be revealed that a greater degree of revelation will come to us where we can see how God was working all things for our good. God is sovereign. Christ knows our needs, and he knows how to grow us and shape us and story us for his glory. And it's being rooted in this truth, Paul is saying, that leads to contentment knowing that our needs are both defined by Christ and met according to Christ and not according to how we, the world, think they should be met, this leads to contentment. And as a reminder, we can learn here from Paul, I think. Paul had a need. Paul had a need. He shared it. He gave the Philippians this opportunity to meet that need, and they did. A few chapters earlier in chapter 2, Paul said he was content even if that meant he would die. Contentment is the theme of his life because Jesus is the theme of his life. His deepest longing, his deepest need has been met in Christ. So if you've got a need spiritually, financially, physically, emotionally, if you've got a need, a learning opportunity here is that we can share it. You could share that need, and maybe God wants to meet it through the church. Maybe God wants to meet it in some way we can't fathom. Maybe God wants you to lean on him and grow we are told the needs of the saints are met through Christ, Christ who is glorious and gives good gifts to his children in the way that he defines, not us. 
It's after this that Paul ends this section on contentment and generosity with a doxology. He says, to our God, the Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. He ends it with worship. Because it's almost as if in reflecting on generosity and the opportunity to be generous and the opportunity to be content in Christ and who Christ is and what he has done, Paul can't help but write a song. The last few lines read this way as we wrap up this morning. It says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Paul ends by saying, remember each other. We remember you. We love you. Our love for you is rooted in the name of Jesus. And and he he mentions those Christians in Caesar's household who would be working for the emperor. And in doing so, he reminds the Philippians that Christ is building his church everywhere. It's the spectrum, right? Christ is permeating the culture from the lowest in society, those in poverty, to those who are in the household of Caesar, the emperor's house working for the emperor. He reminds them of the work along the spectrum, and and generosity is growing their church. Joy is growing their church. Anxiety is fading. Contentment in Christ is growing. Grace is growing. The needs of the church, your deepest need has been met in Christ. It doesn't mean that Philippi was not struggling with hardship and sorrow and longing. They absolutely were, but, they're, but Christ was meeting them in that need and sowing contentment in them through Paul's words. And Paul's words are not just for them, they're also for us. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope that we would be a people who grow in contentment because we recognize that out of the great, beautiful love of Christ, our deepest need to be reconciled to God has been met by God himself. And if our deepest need has been met and he calls us his children, then he is willing and able and excited to meet your other needs. But if we define how our needs are met and not God, then we become gods. And we don't want that. We want Jesus to be able to define how he will meet our need. And that's where contentment, in that space, that's where contentment lies. It's so difficult. It takes um, prayer and repentance, and we talked about this at the prayer gathering, but it takes time, prayer, contentment, community. Well, contentment takes contentment, duh. Um, it, it takes an abundance of things, and we fail, I fail at being content all the time, but when I'm, when I'm appealing to the Lord in prayer, dwelling in his word, experiencing his truth being reminded to me in both repentance and forgiveness and community. It's, it's in those moments where I taste that taste and see that the Lord is good, as we say at the table. So as we come to the table, let us remember the wonderful cost of that need being met, the reconciliation of God and man that happened at the cross. And let's celebrate with gratitude and contentment. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, the best, the only way I know how to respond to a call to contentment is prayer, is talking with the Father. Lord, it's so hard when things are hard or good to, to remember that everything is rooted in you, anchored in you, that my, that my flourishing, that my contentment is in you. And so, Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit right now, all the brothers and sisters in the room, would you 
anchor us in contentment that comes from you. As hard as contentment, as far off as it may seem, Lord, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We can access contentment now through you, Jesus, who strengthens us. So I ask that this Sunday would be a strengthening moment, that this sermon would be used to strengthen, that this, that this word, this text would be used to strengthen us, that at the meal we would be strengthened by remembering your goodness and your gospel and your sacrifice. Hardship will come. Sorrow will come because the world is groaning in anticipation to be fully reconciled with God again. And so we sojourn on, we, we venture on, we pilgrimage on in this land knowing that death still reigns, but it will not have the final word. That sorrow is still a part of this life, but contentment for the Christian is accessible now in Christ, who he is and what he has done. And so, Lord, we thank you for this truth that we dwell on. We thank you for the sacrifice that you have made for us, Jesus. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to sow peace into our souls through contentment. Lord, we love you. We trust you. Um, help us. We need you. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.